So, we've finished 1 Timothy. And now we are going to go through the entire Old Testament this morning. (laughs) And you think I'm kidding. And I'm not. What we're going to do eventually is get to Psalm 145. And I thought before we did that, we would take a little Old Testament survey. And so we are going to do something a little out of the ordinary. We are going to have some uh, overheads that you will see behind me that will give you some visuals of some of the material that I'm going to be giving you because I'm going to give you so much that you're going to need all the help you can have. And uh, if you've ever wondered what it looked like to see somebody drink out of a fire hose or, you know, what it looked like to stick a camel through the eye of a needle, this is one of those mornings where you're going to see it happen. And I just want you to know that all of the stuff that we're learning this morning is, is, you know, kind of academic. It's going to be kind of a classroom type of a thing, and it'll be like this for several weeks, not so much in the weeks to follow, but for about seven weeks, we're going to be looking at issues related to the Old Testament. A lot of people don't know this, but 77.2% of God's Word is found in the Old Testament. That means over three-quarters of what God wants you to know is found in the Old Testament scriptures. And this is, this is significant. We have 39 books of the Old Testament teaching us about God's character, teaching us about God's will for your life, teaching us about um, God's plan for the future. And all of these things um, we find in the Old Testament and much, much more. But what's ironic is, is that most preachers spend most of their time preaching in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. They spend the bulk of their time as, quote, New Testament preachers. And did you know that most Christians spend most of their time reading the New Testament? Why is this? Why is it that three-fourths of the Bible is often neglected by people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians? Not New Testament-believing Christians, but Bible-believing Christians. Well, there are many reasons. One reason is the Old Testament is big and it's scary. One, one reason is, as you're reading through the Old Testament, you find out that it's not chronological. There's some weird things in there. One of the things is, is as you go through the Old Testament, you find passages that are so complex and so strange that you're wondering, what does this mean? And you read it over and you still don't know what it means. And so you have to look in the footnotes of your study Bible and you still don't know what it means. And then other places are so boring, they are the cure for insomnia. So-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and and then you're asleep. Many of us have started out, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and we get through Genesis, and it's interesting, and we get through Exodus, and it's interesting, and we get through Leviticus, and we die and go back to the New Testament. Because we don't know what to do with that. What... What do we do with the Leviticus? I mean, how many of you are cutting off the fat off the lobes of the kidneys and offering it as a soothing aroma to the Lord? We don't do that anymore. And so when we get to the Old Testament, there are so many things that bother us and confuse us that we don't know. We know we aren't under the law and we know that Christ fulfilled the law, whatever that means. And so we we don't know what to do. But we like to go to the Old Testament and pick out stories, maybe use it for illustration for the New Testament. 
Some people, you know, can tell you about um, the Psalms, and some people can tell you about Proverbs, and, and most people know those books okay, maybe Genesis and Exodus, but other than that, we're pretty illiterate about the Old Testament. And one of the things that really ekes me is when I see a Bible that's, you know, the New Testament and Psalms, or the New Testament or Psalms and Proverbs, you have one of those, hide it. Because that, that little configuration of just New Testament and Psalms or Psalms and Proverbs has underlying it a false understanding that somehow the Old Testament is not as significant as the New Testament. And it is just as significant, just as authoritative, and just as necessary for your life as the New Testament. And in the weeks to come, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the value of the Old Testament and the purpose of the Old Testament and how to apply the New Testament and Old Testament misconceptions and issues between law and grace so you can help help yourself sort through all of this and have an idea of what the Old Testament is about and how you can go about um, understanding it in a clear way. Now, when we come to... Um, the Old Testament, the first thing that is helpful to understand is just how the Old Testament is put together. What is um, the Old Testament structure? And that's what we want to start out with this morning, especially, especially the Hebrew Bible. How is the Hebrew Bible structured? And then how is the English Bible structured as compared to the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. And so we're going to look at these issues and then we'll get into some issues based on chronology. But first, let's discuss the structure of the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew scriptures. If you were to look into uh, get a Hebrew Bible, you would discover something interesting. You would, you would discover that there's only 22 or 24 books, depending on which one you had. And you're thinking, well, I thought there were 39 books to the Old Testament. Well... It depends on what you're looking at. Now, it's not that their content is different, but there is a different arrangement. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew and Aramaic are the primary languages. Mostly Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. And because of that, we could call the, the Hebrew scriptures or the Hebrew Old Testament are good names to call the Old Testament. You know, old carries with it the idea of kind of worn out. It's the worn-out testament. You know, we've got the new good one and the old one that used to be good, but now it's not. And that's how a lot of people see the Old Testament. So you might want to call it the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Covenant or the Hebrew Bible because all of that Old Testament was written in Hebrew mostly and a little bit was Aramaic. So if I talk about the Hebrew Scriptures, I'm talking about Genesis through Malachi. And if you were to have a Hebrew Bible, you would see these 22 to 24 books. Um, 39 books in our English Bible are not there. And that's because the Hebrew Scriptures are divided up into three categories. There are the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The Law, or the Torah, the Prophets, or the Nevi'im, and the Writings, the Kituvim. And those are the three different designations of the Hebrew Bible. 
And if you were to look in, for instance, Luke 24:44, and that passage is uh, the key passage to show us how the Hebrew Bible was even divided up into those three categories in Jesus' time, you read this. These are my words, Jesus speaking to his disciples after his resurrection. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, the designations there are in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that is the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's the threefold designation that the Hebrews put their Bible in. Now, the first division was the law. And the law contained Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The second division was the prophets, or the Nevi'im. And they were divided into two parts, the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets were Joshua... Judges, sometimes Ruth was included with Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The book of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were combined. They're just called Samuel and Kings. They are divided up in our Bibles. The second category was the latter prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah sometimes had included with it into one book, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and what was called the Twelve. The twelve, of course, are the twelve, what we call minor prophets. They're not minor because they're less important. They're just smaller for the most part. That would be Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, you know, or Haggai, Zechariah, no, let's see, how is it? Habakkuk, um, Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, I guess. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's it. It's HDHZM. Um, we, we, <laughs> I messed up on the way, on the way to um, church today. Uh, uh, my son Mark and his class, they're learning the books of the Old Testament, and so we're quizzing them away, you know, and, and uh, we get to the end, and he starts mixing them up, and we all start mixing them up, and we say, remember the secret formula, HDHZM. Because we remember that Hiram Jones ate orange juice and mixed nuts with his secret formula, HZHZM. Um, every, every, the beginning letters of every one of those is a book of the, uh, of the minor prophets. And so anyways, all of those prophets are all conti- just in one book called the Twelve. And so that's how the Hebrew Bible is con- constructed, how it's organized. And because of um, that, um, you have a couple books added, which we might not... Um, normally add together Ruth and Judges, and then you also have Jeremiah and Lamentations. In the third category would be the writings. Um, these would contain the poetical books of Job and Psalms and Proverbs. The five rolls are what is called the megalith, and that is Ruth and Song of Solomon's, Ecclesiastes and Lamentations and Esther. And the third category referred to um, all the books of Israel's history. That's what the writings are about, the books of their history. Um, and you would have Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, one book, and the Chronicles, um, both books put in together into one. So this makes five books of law, eight books of the prophets, 11 books of the writings, for a grand total of 24 books. Unless you include Ruth with Judges and Lamentations with Jeremiah, and then you only have 22. So all the content is still the same in a Hebrew Bible. It's just that some of the books are 
condensed or combined, not condensed, but combined, why ours are broken up just for the ease of being able to find our way through them. Now, we get into the English Bible structure. And our English Bibles derive their structure from a book, uh, a translation of the Bible called the Septuagint or the LXX. And this is the history behind that that you need to know. Remember in Daniel, when Daniel was held captive in Babylon, and you remember the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon, and then after them came the Greeks who conquered the Medo-Persians. And Alexander the Great was the world ruler, and he just swept just the whole, you know, ancient Near Eastern area there and conquered the whole world and Alexander was brilliant and one of the things he wanted to do is develop a language that everybody could speak that would be the common trade language and of course he wanted it to be Greek and so he developed a Greek language called Koine Greek and Koine means common, common Greek. That is the language the New Testament was written in. Now Before the New Testament was written, some Jews got together because this was a a success. And even after Alexander died, the four generals who took over the different uh, kingdoms that he had conquered uh, promoted this, what is called the Hellenization or the the Greekizing of the, of the, of the whole area of his kingdom. And, and it became, Greek became so popular that the Jews decided they would translate the Hebrew Bible into the common Greek language. That happened around 250 to 150 BC. And out of that came the Septuagint or the LXX. It is called the LXX, which are the Roman numeral 70, because it was thought that 70 scribes translated the book in a very short period of time, which I wasn't there, so I can't verify that, and there's disagreement about whether that's true or not. But the Septuagint or the LXX divided the books up into four categories or five, depending how you look at it, for a grand total of um, 39 books. And that is how our English Bible derived its structure from the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint or the LXX. And these four topical categories, first, there were the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Second, the history books, Joshua through Esther. Third, the the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. Then the prophets were divided up into the minor prophets, or the fourth would be the minor prophets and the major prophets, um, you know, the 12 verses, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel as the the major prophets and the, the minor ones being the rest at the end of our Bibles. So that's how they are Bibles. When you look at the, the index to your Old Testament, that order was brought by the Jews who translated the Hebrew scriptures um, into Greek, and we adopted that same order. Now... Just so you know, those categories are not chronological. They are topical. They are topical categories. They were not trying to make a chronological order. That is why when you're reading through the Old Testament, all of a sudden you come up to some book where you don't even know where you're at. I mean, how did you get here? Um, where, where are the kings? Um, you know, you're, you're reading along and you get to Second Chronicles and pretty soon, you know, you're in Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther and now you're in Persia. And then all of a sudden you're, Job, where is he coming from? And then you're into Psalms and I thought David wrote those and, and all of a sudden it's all mixed up and you're confused. Well, the reason is, is because they are categorized according to topic, 
not according to chronology. Now, what we've learned so far is this. The Hebrew Bible has three major divisions. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings for 22 to 24 books, depending on how you group Jeremiah and Lamentations and Judges and Ruth. The English Bibles took their structure from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint or the LXX. And it has divisions of the law, the historical books, the poetry books, and the prophets. Now, if your head is swimming from that, we're just starting. If you wonder what it looks like to see a grass snake eat an elephant, we're going to do that right now. Now, you you need to look into your bulletin and pull out a little chime chart that says Old Testament chronological time chart. And don't go messing that up or turn it into an airplane because that's going to be part of homework for this week. And you can find that in your bulletin. We are going to now do a hypersonic chronological survey of the Old Testament. And so this chart will help you see what we're going to do. We're going to cover the whole thing. I was not kidding. The whole, you can say, you know, my pastor preached the whole Testament in 35 minutes. We'll see. You don't think it can be done, but it, it's possible. All right, let's talk about this Old Testament chronology. First, if you look at that chart in your bulletin, or you can see it on the overhead, half of it on the overhead, um, you can see there that there are books in between two sets of double lines, like Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and so forth. Those books are the key chronological books of the Old Testament. They are the backbone, um, chronologically speaking, of the Old Testament. Those are critical books to understand. All the other books, which either appear above the lines, the double lines, or below the double lines, happened during the times of those books. And you'll see what I mean as we go through um, these books in a chronological way. Let's look at Genesis. Look there at the chart or up on the board. You'll see this book, Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It records the beginnings. The theme is the beginnings or you, I like also the making and preserving of the nation Israel. And as you're looking at Genesis, you say, well, what's Genesis about? Well, the key to understanding Genesis is four main events and four main people. That's how you remember the book. There are four major events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the disbursement of the people at the Tower of Babel, which gives birth to all the nations. And then there's four major people. Do you remember who those are? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, if you know those four events and those four people, you have the whole book of Genesis down because that's what the book is about. Now, if you look above the book of Genesis, you'll see the book of Job. Now, what is it doing there? I thought it came before Psalms. Well, not chronologically. Job was a man who lived about the same time as Abraham. If you read the story of Abraham and you read the story of Job, they had a very similar family structure. Both of Abraham and Job were patriarchs of their family, kind of leaders of their family. And they were the ones who led their families... And made the decisions and were like the rulers, the tribal rulers. So they know that Job was written somewhere, or or the story occurred, not written. It's probably written by either Moses or someone else, maybe even Joshua. But most people think 
the story of Job was given to Moses by Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and that's how he came to understand the story of Job, and he wrote it down. But it happened during the time of Genesis, around the time of Abraham, maybe, you know, 2000 to 2500 B.C., So that's what that is about. Job is a story about worshiping God no matter what and teaches us great lessons about pain and suffering. Then if you move on to the right, in between the double lines, you'll see the book of Exodus. Remember, at the end of the book of Genesis, all the people of of God, and they haven't even become a nation yet, have all fled to Egypt to escape the famine. And then they're there in Egypt... And they begin to multiply. And Exodus starts off by saying, hey, there a king arose who did not know Joseph. That is, generations had gone by around 300 plus years. And a king arose who didn't know Joseph. And they began to oppress the Israelite people. You remember the the people were oppressed. They cried out. God sent Moses to deliver. There was 10 plagues. They ended the plagues of the Passover. They then departed from Egypt. They went out through the Red Sea. They camped at Mount Sinai. When they were there at Mount Sinai, they received the instructions to build the tabernacle. That is kind of the portable temple and all of its furnishings. And the whole story of Exodus, the theme is about the redemption of God, how God redeemed his people from bondage. And all the way through the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, you will find out that it often refers to, and that when I redeemed you from Egypt with a, you know, a mighty arm and an outstretched hand or whatever, um, it occurs over and over again. That is the theme. Well, they're, they're out the mountain, they're camped out there. They get the instructions to build the, the tabernacle, the portable temple. And now all they need is an instruction manual for the priests. And so they get one. That's the book of Leviticus. If you look, you'll see that Leviticus is above Exodus. And the reason is, is Leviticus was written at the time of Exodus. While they were camped at Mount Sinai, they received the book of Leviticus so the priests would know how to operate the tabernacle. Now, that's pretty easy. The book of Leviticus, a lot of times people think of the book of Leviticus as, you know, the, the cure for insomnia. And um, it's a painful book because, you know, you don't, you know, chop up a bunch of animals and drain their blood. And it just seems so futile. But if you understand how to learn from the Old Testament, you, bef- you just discover that Leviticus is a very rich book, not a boring book. It teaches us about the holiness of God. It teaches us how to worship God in spirit and truth. It teaches us principles like this. Men are sinners. Is that still good and true? Yes, that's true. And you need to know that. It teaches us that if you are going to approach a holy God, you need to have a blood sacrifice offered in your substitute. Is that still true? Yes. Is it still true that God requires the death of someone in order to atone for your sins? Yes. And all of these things you learn as you go through the book of Leviticus, through all the sacrificial systems. You see how severe God is and how you, if you don't, aren't right with God or if you try to worship God in a way that's contrary to his word, God will not accept your worship. I don't care how sincere you are. You learn that in the story of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10 where he... He turns them into carbon. The the Hebrew says fire came out from the presence of the Lord and literally ate them because they offered strange fire. Very serious, very practical, very helpful things to know about the God that we serve who is unchanging. Now, 
They get the operating manual, and now they're ready to take off and enter the promised land. And that's when we look at the chart and we see the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers describes their final departure, and they're going to enter into the promised land from the south. But you remember the story, right? The doubting spies. Oh, we can't go in there. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. The people, there, the sons of the Nephilim. They're giants. They would devour it. I mean, they walk around, you know, eating cows with one bite. <laughs> and they just fabricate all of this, you know, hyperbole about how huge and massive. And even though God promised that he would bring them into the land and swore to it, They rejected the promise of God and they believed the ten doubting Thomases. And only Joshua and Caleb believed. But from that time, from the time they started camping at Mount Sinai after they went through the Red Sea, all the way to the place where they entered the land, that was a one-year, two-month period. And then they tried to enter... But they disbelieved and God said, okay, we are going on a death march for 40 years. So that all of you stubborn and stiff-necked people who have refused to believe my promises and have rejected me and my word can die off and your sons and daughters can enter And that's what the book of Numbers is about. And now a lot of people have a problem with Numbers because, you know, who would want to read a book like that but an accountant? I mean, you you read a book like that and you just think, oh, man, this is boring. Not so. Now, there is a, a numbering at the beginning and there's a numbering at the end, but that's so you can see that everybody died. But in the middle, there are some great things in the book of Numbers. When you go into that book, you find all sorts of stuff. You know, um, uh, contrary to what most people believe, that book is an action book. I mean, you look in there, you see the failed attempt to enter the promised land. You see the rebellion of the sons of Korah, where God opens up the earth and swallows them alive. You see the whole Balaam incident with him, you know, the donkey rebuking him. You see the story of the bronze serpent, and all of these little episodes happen, and you see how God systematically weeded out that generation so that at the end of the book of Numbers, they're finally ready to enter into the promised land. And that's where the book of Deuteronomy comes in. Because now they've made their way from the south of Israel's promised land, up around on the east side of the Jordan, up across from Jericho. They're still across the Jordan. And this is a place not real big. It would be like the equivalent of maybe um, a million to have two million people from Burbank and this area all going on a march from here to Lancaster and Palmdale and taking 40 years to get there. But none of us get there because we all die before we do. And our children get to go there. And so God just leads them around the wilderness and slowly lets them all die off. 
That's what that happens. He makes them nomads. He makes it so their clothes don't wear out, their shoes don't wear out. He gives them a pillar of fire by night, which is like a huge street light to light up the camp. And then he gives them a big pillar of cloud to shade them and to show his presence during the day. He feeds them bread out of heaven and, and dumb quail come so they can swat them down and eat them. And they just wait and wait and wait until the 40 years is complete. And when they're all dead, except for Joshua and Caleb, because they believed, then the people are ready to enter the land. Moses is leading the people all this time. He's 120 years old. They're across from the Jordan. God says, I'm going to let you see the promised land, but you can't enter it because you got mad and you did not treat me as holy before the people when he struck the rock the second time. And so Moses doesn't get to enter. So he charges Joshua. And Joshua becomes the man to lead them into the promised land. But before they go into the land, they need some help. Because God knows they're going to get into the land, they're going to conquer all these people, now they're going to, instead of being nomads, they're all going to have cities and, and vineyards and cisterns they didn't dig, and they're just going to receive all of this blessing from God. And now, they're in the land, and they need more laws, they need more details. And so the book of Deuteronomy, which is the, above the book of Numbers, was written at the end of the book of Numbers, right before they entered into the promised land and conquered Jericho. And the book of Numbers, or the book of Deuteronomy, gives them an expansion of the law. It literally means second law, but it's the same law applied to a whole bunch of different situations. And if you study Deuteronomy, it is so rich and so good. I mean, there are some weird things in there, but for the most part, you get to see how God applies the Ten Commandments to almost every kind of situation you can think about. It's really fascinating. And so that's what Deuteronomy is all about. They've got their portable tabernacle, their temple. They've got their operation manual. They've served time for, for, for rejecting God. The people have learned the lesson. They're ready to enter the land. They get the second law, and now they're ready to go in. And so who takes them in? Joshua. And then Joshua is the one who brings them in. And the theme of Joshua is conquer and divide. Joshua goes in as a military campaigner. They conquer the, the land with the Lord's help. And then they divvy it out to all the tribes. And Joshua is a great book because you see how God is faithful to keep his promises. And you see how he works through a faithful man. And at the, the last two chapters of Joshua are just phenomenal. I mean, you need to read them sometime. They're little sermonettes by Joshua. You know where he says, and for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people all, um, you know, covenant with God again. Oh, we're going to keep his commandments. You know, we're going to be your people and you're going to be our God. And we're going to follow you and do every single thing that you tell us to do. And so the uh, Joshua ends and Joshua dies and the book of Judges begins and the people reject everything they promised. They then do exactly opposite of what they said they would do. And that's what the book of Judges is about. It's about the disobedience and consequences of that disobedience of the people of God during that time. And what's interesting about Judges, and this is what you need to know about Judges, is Judges is a book that goes in cycles. The, the cycles go like this. The people disobey God. The curses of Deuteronomy come upon them. They begin to be oppressed by their enemies. And they don't like it. So they cry out to God, help us, help us, we're sorry, we repent. 
And God says, okay, I'll raise up a judge. The judge is raised up. He leads the people, you know, beats back the bad guys. The bad guys are then healing. And the, there's peace for a time. The people go, oh, great. They forget the Lord again. They do their own thing. They fall into sin. All of a sudden, the curses come upon them. They say, oh, God, help us, help us. So he raises up another judge over and over again. All the way through the book of Judges, that's what happens. There is a verse that appears over and over in Judges. It appears in 17.6 and 18.1 and 19.1 and 21.25, and this is it. It's the theme of the book. And there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it teaches us that if you don't have good, godly leadership leading the people, it leads to total anarchy and wickedness. And that's what the book of Judges is about. Now, if you look on your chart, you will see here on the screen, you'll see that Ruth is above the book of Judges. Why is that? Because if you read the first verse of Ruth, what does it say? It says, and it was during the time of the judges. And it goes into the story of Ruth and, you know, her and her mother-in-law, both widows in Moab. And they come back and, you know, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, redeems Ruth. And, oh, it's this nice little romantic story. And it teaches us, though, that there is this godly remnant in Israel during the time of judges, that even though there may be great wickedness in society, God always has a righteous remnant. That's what we see in the book of Ruth. But the most important thing of the book of Ruth is the part that most people just skip over. It's the last verses of Ruth. The most important thing about Ruth is that Ruth married Boaz, and Boaz and Ruth gave birth to Obed, and Obed, Jesse, and Jesse, David, the king of Israel, whose line gave birth to the Messiah. That is why Ruth is included in the Bible. I mean, do you wonder why God just like randomly stuck in this little romance in there? Well, it wasn't necessarily for the romance. It was for the end of the book to show us a vital link in the messianic line that if we did not have Ruth, we would not know the total line of the Messiah. But because that's there, we've got it. So that's what Ruth is about. Now, going to the right more in between the two double lines, you'll see 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel takes off where Judges ends. Remember, Judges shows how Israel went through the time of Judges. But the theme of 1 Samuel is transitions, transitions in leadership. And what we see at the beginning of Judges is a man named Eli, who is the priest and judge. He is then followed by Samuel, who is a prophet, priest, and judge. And then Samuel anoints the first king, Saul, who is a godless king. The people wanted a king like the nations, key term, and they got one. Tall, dark, handsome, and ungodly. God had promised and provided for a king. If you look in Genesis 49, where it talks about Judah, it says a scepter shall not depart from Judah. And if you look in Deuteronomy 18, God says in the law, when I place a king over you, you should make him write down the whole law. So God was planning to have a king. The problem is that the, the people wanted a king like the nation. So God gave them one, Saul. And then Saul, of course, died and was succeeded by David, the man after God's own heart. So the book of Samuel records all of this transition in leadership, starting from Eli, the priest and judge, to 
Samuel, the prophet, priest, and judge, to Saul, the godless, worldly king, to David, the king, a man after God's own heart. And at the end of the book, Saul is dead, his sons are dead, and David, who has already been anointed by Samuel, is just waiting to take the throne. He then becomes king. Now, then you enter into 2 Samuel. And the book of 2 Samuel begins where 1 Samuel ends. David is now the new king. And the whole book of 2 Samuel talks about David and all the good things he did and all the bad things he did and all the really ugly things he did. It is a kind of an unabridged account of David's life, 2 Samuel. It talks about all the his adultery and his murder and his fleeing from Absalom. All that stuff is written in there. And that's what Sam, 2 Samuel is about, the life of David, good, bad, and ugly. But above the 2 Samuel, you'll see the book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles is a book that's also about the life of David, but it only records the good things David did. It's a selective history. And you ask yourself, why is that? Well, both 1 and 2 Chronicles were written by Ezra. And if you look on the timeline, you find Ezra comes way to the end, to the right. Ezra is the man God used after they came back from Babylon. And he was the scribe. And he was trying to help rebuild the um, spiritual lives of the people and get the temple worship restored. And so what he did is he went back into the records they had of the kings and he compiled all the good things that all the good kings did into First and Second Chronicles so people could see three important things. How the Davidic covenant worked out, how true worship worked out, and how true worship was modeled by these godly kings who worshiped God in truth. And so they are selective histories. And, and like in First Chronicles, you don't read anything bad that David did except for one thing, and that's numbering the people. Do you remember he, he numbered the people to see how strong he was? And then remember God says, okay, because you did that and you were trained to trust in man's strength, then, you know, I'm going to give you the option, you know, you can have pestilence and you can have famine or you can be, you know, chased by your enemies for three days or whatever. He gives him the three things. He takes the short time period. I forget what plague it was. Anyways, he, he brings that upon himself and Israel suffers. And then in order to repent, he goes up and he buys a threshing floor, which was on the, this high hill, the hill of Jerusalem. He buys this threshing floor where they thresh grain. And on that hill, he sacrifices to God. And that hill becomes the Temple Mount. And because the theme of First and Second Chronicles, one of the themes is temple, that bad story about David is included in there because it shows how the Temple Mount was purchased. So that's why First Chronicles is above Second Samuel. They're both about the life of David. First Chronicles is about the spiritual life of David. Second Samuel about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, Psalms is also above 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel because who wrote most of the Psalms? David. And David was the one who instituted the temple choir, right? And he was the one who was the sweet psalmist of Israel. And so most of the Psalms come above 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel because David wrote those. Now, you move over a little bit farther and you get to 1 Kings. Who was the first king in 1 Kings? Solomon. Remember, David died and he passed the torch to who? Solomon. Solomon became king. And 1 Kings talks about Solomon's reign 
and then following his reign, the reign of the divided kings of the divided kingdom. Now, this is what confuses a lot of people. You get into kings after Solomon, and it talks about Israel. And if you aren't careful to the context, you don't know what it's talking about. It's either talking about all the people of Israel, the people of Judah, or the people in the north. Because what happened is, is when Solomon died, his son, Rehoboam, became king of Judah. But the ten northern tribes rebelled, and or eleven, and they rebelled under the leadership of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam instituted a false system of worship that they followed until the Assyrians destroyed them and took them captive in 722 B.C. There were no good kings that ever came out of the northern tribes of Jeroboam called Israel. Judah was in the south, the kingdom of Judah. So from that point, you have this division in the kingdoms. And oftentimes, when you're reading in the Old Testament, it'll use um, you know, names for them like Ephraim. And you're thinking, who's Ephraim? Well, it's talking about one of the, the kingdoms. And so you need to keep that in line. But 1 Kings and 2 Kings talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of all the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, if you look above 1 Kings, you will see Proverbs Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Now, why would those be above 1 Kings? Well, who wrote them? Solomon. And where in the chronology does he fit? In 1 Kings. So because he wrote Proverbs about wisdom, Ecclesiastes about the vanity of living life, but not for the glory of God, and Song of Solomon about romantic love and relationships, because Solomon wrote those, they appear above the book that records his life and his deeds, 1 Kings. Also, you will see 2 Chronicles, which takes all the good kings of Judah, and it, like 1 Chronicles, is a selective history written by Ezra about the good things that the good kings, there was some good kings in Judah, even though there was only a few, and he records that so the people after the captivity can learn how to worship God correctly and do what's right. And that's why that book is there. Now, at the end of 2 Kings, the people of the northern tribes have already been taken captive. In 722, Sennacherib and um, other, other um, Assyrian kings, they attacked Israel and took them all captive, and uh, they, they were gone. And then Judah was left. And Judah lasted a little while longer because of David, and God loved David, and so he allowed Judah to remain longer. But Judah fell into sin. You know, Hezekiah was a good king, but he did some foolish things, like showed some people from Babylon um, the king's treasuries, the temple treasuries, and the people thought, you know, there's a lot of gold in there. And we'd like to have that gold. As a matter of fact, let's come back with our army and take it. And that's exactly what they did. Nebuchadnezzar came back, and in three different deportations, he took the people of Israel captive. He first took Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the nobles. Then he came back later, 
and took all the skilled people and the healthy people and the craftsmen. And then he came back again and took all the leftovers. And then he just left the people who were just the down and outers or some people ran away and hid in the bushes and they escaped. Those were the people, those people who were left after the three deportations to Babylon, who then intermingled with other peoples and became the Samaritans of the New Testament. That's where they come from. And so all of this was happening. But at the end of 2 Kings, Israel has been taken captive and just totally destroyed. It's just bad. Everything's just bad at that time. You think, man, what's going on? So if you look there, you'll see this 2 Kings. And underneath the Kings, you'll see all these people. All the prophets, what are they doing under there? Hosea and Amos and Habakkuk and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Joel and Micah and Zephaniah and Jonah and Nahum and Obadiah. What are they all doing under the kings? It's because almost all the prophets were sent during the time of the kings. Men of God, commissioned by God to try and get the people. This, the prophets, this is a, this is a visual representation of how much God loves his people. I mean, he could have destroyed them a long time before that. He sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they would not listen. And so finally, according to his promise and the covenant that they agreed to keep, he took them captive. And that's exactly what happened when the Assyrians came in 722 and later on Nebuchadnezzar came. But the prophets, if you look below there, you'll see to Israel, Hosea and Amos were sent. That is to the ones that the northern tribe later on to Judah was sent Habakkuk and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah, of course, wrote Lamentations, Joel, Micah and Zephaniah. Then there were a couple prophets who prophesied about Assyria. Remember Jonah? Remember his story? Jonah, God said, I want you to go preach. He said, no. So he got the woe. He went down in the fish. He got thrown up. He went and got his act together. He went and preached reluctantly to the people. And what happened? There was the greatest revival that ever has been recorded in the history of the world. And the people of Nineveh repented for about a generation. And then they turned back to their sin. And so God's promise of judgment that threatened in Jonah was fulfilled in Nahum. And Nahum records the promise of God's judgment on Assyria. Then there was Obadiah, who prophesied about Edom. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. Remember that they were at odds? Well, the Edomites, when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar came to sack Jerusalem, the Edomites, their relatives, act, actually helped Judah's enemies sack them. Their own relatives helped attack. And because of that, God pronounced judgment upon Edom through the prophet Obadiah. And that is what Obadiah is about. So then they all get taken captive into these three deportations that are all in Babylon. They're hanging out there. And God has two major prophets during that time. This is called, these are called the exilic prophets, the prophets of the exile. And that's Ezekiel and Daniel. That's why they appear um, during that time in the 70-year time period. And Ezekiel is the prophet to the common people. He goes and he preaches to the commoners who are captive in Babylon. 
And then Daniel is the prophet in the king's court. Remember, from a very early age, him and his buddies were found to be ten times better than anything the king could produce, and he interpreted the dreams, and so he was in the king's court as God's man among the nobles. So those two prophets then prophesied until the Medo-Persian Empire came, and they were that is, the Babylonians, were conquered by the Medo-Persians. And Cyrus was the king at that time. Now, what's interesting is, is the Bible speaks of Cyrus 150 years before he was born. If you were to look in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, you would learn that there was a prophecy that Isaiah had about Cyrus. Before, before Israel even went into captivity, before Cyrus was even a twinkle in his mother's eye, God called him by name and said, you will be my servant, your name is Cyrus, and you will let my people return from captivity. And they hadn't even gone into captivity yet. Well, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that a rabbi, and there's some confusion about who it is, some people want to you know, make it you know, Daniel or whatever, but a rabbi came to Cyrus and said, look at what the God of Israel said about you 150 years before. And it says Cyrus looked at it, read the prophecy, and was so amazed that he said, well, then let it be done. And he did everything the prophecy said. He said, you can return to your homeland. And so they then ventured back under the decree of first Cyrus and then Darius and then Artaxerxes. They got to go back to the land. The problem is, when they went back, the whole town of Jerusalem was burnt down. The walls were knocked down. The temple was destroyed from Nebuchadnezzar 70 years previously. And it was just a waste. So they had to rebuild. That's where the book of Ezra comes in. Ezra was the scribe, the man of God, who wanted to get people worshiping God correctly again. But the first thing they had to do is rebuild the temple. And so God sends him there to do some religious reforms to get the people on track. And he needs some help. So he sends two other prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And that's why they're underneath the book of Ezra. And Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene. And they're pretty, they're like God's whips, verbal whips. Because this is what happens. Cyrus says, you can go back. Darius says, sure. Here, you can even have money. You can even have your utensils. He gave them the gold things out of the treasury that they stole and said, you can take them back. Imagine that. They brought back all these materials and we're going to use them to rebuild the temple. And you know what the people did with that stuff? They used it on their own houses. And this did not make God happy. And so he sends the prophet Haggai in there to straighten them out. So you're all sitting in your nice paneled houses. And my temple is in ruins and just really scares them stiff. So what happens is Zechariah comes on the heels of Haggai and makes all of these promises to encourage the people. You know, Haggai is kind of the bad cop and Zechariah is kind of the good cop. and, And Zechariah comes in and makes all these promises of the Messiah, that the Messiah is coming. He's coming. And all the way through, you see the Messiah all the way through, Zechariah, and finally at the end, he comes to earth. Man, you better get the temple done, because the Messiah comes back. He's going to want to see it finished. And so guess what? They get on it, and they complete it under the leadership of Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah and also Joshua and Zerubbabel. Then 
The temple's built, but they need some protection. They need some walls around the city, and that's what the book of Nehemiah is about. Nehemiah comes on the scene. He is the man who's going to help them rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is used as the man to help them do that. And in 52 days, once they finally got you know, their building permits down, they get to rebuild the walls, and they do it in 52 days. Each family builds the section of the wall closest to their house, and they build the whole thing, and now they're protected. Now they have a temple. Now they have walls around the city. They're their own people in their own land. And all they need to do is make sure they keep worshiping God right. And that's where Malachi comes in. He comes in to make sure they keep worshiping God correctly in truth and in spirit. But if you notice above Nehemiah, you see Esther. And what is she doing up there? Well, this is what she's doing up there. When Cyrus gave the decree that all the people could go back to their homeland, a lot of the Jews went back to their homeland, but some of them didn't go. Some of them stayed in captivity, and Esther and Mordecai were two of them, among many others. And so the book of Esther explains how God preserved the Jews who were still in captivity, the ones who did not return to the promised land. They stayed, remember Esther, was among the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. So, that's it. That's easy. Now, what have we learned? The structure of the Hebrew Bible, 22 to 24 books, 5 books of law, 8 books of prophets, 11 books of writing. The structure of the English Bible, which was taken from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the LXX. You have the five books of law, the 12 books of history, the five books of poetry, five major prophets, and 12 minor prophets. Your homework... Memorize the books of the Old Testament if you haven't done it so far. And if you don't know how to do that, then go to my son's eight-year-old class because they're learning them. Every, every week we're, we're talking about them, you know, trying to get Hosea Jolamus down and get Lamentations after Jeremiah and all those things. Get the books of the Old Testament memorized and then memorize this sheet right here. And you're thinking, oh, you've got to be kidding. Listen. They made us do this in one night in seminary. I'm going to give you a whole week. <laughs> now, you think this is hard. Once you have the books memorized, all you need to understand is a little bit about the themes of the books. And then as soon as you can get the chronology down, then any time you read the Old Testament, you know exactly what they're talking about. You know the time period. You know the basic um, time. And you aren't confused anymore. And it makes everything make sense after that. So I would encourage you to pain yourselves to try and get that chronology in. Finally, read the Old Testament and be blessed. There are so many great things in there waiting for you to discover things that you have neglected, I'm sure. You know, read some minor prophets. They're good for you. I mean, we wouldn't tell people to only eat one of the four food groups because what happens is you get deficiencies. Well, if you only read one-fourth of the Bible, you get theological deficiencies, which give birth to behavior deficiencies. So make sure you read the Old Testament. Make sure you begin to look at that. And we're going to be looking at this in the weeks to come, and I'm sure that it will be a great blessing to many of you as you discover things you never even knew. 
And so we are praying that God will bless this church as we seek to honor him and the whole counsel of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all that we have learned this morning. We thank you that your word is so great and vast that it gives us everything we need for life and godliness, but not just in the New Testament. We need all of the whole counsel of your word. We need to understand who you are. We need to see how you've worked with your people. We need to learn the lessons of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. We need to learn, Father, the lessons that they failed to learn. And, Father, model after those godly people found in the pages of the Hebrew Bible. And, Father, we need to be people of the whole council. We know that Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of your mouth, not just some of it. So, Father, I pray in the weeks to come that we would have our eyes open to the great treasure we have in three-fourths of our Bible, which we call the Old Testament. And, Father, may we, by studying it and learning it, grow closer to you. And may we give you more glory and honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.